Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. I want to talk for a quick minute about how weird all of this is. Like our existence. I'm not like on some kind of philosophical thing. I'm talking about this company. It is so strange and unique. Like I really don't know of anything else like this. Listen, all across Canada, all over the world, they are trying to solve this problem. How do we pay for news? How do we sustain journalism? I don't pretend to have the answer that will save the global news industry. I don't even know if what we're doing here can be replicated by other companies right here in Canada. All I know is that at this company, at Canada Land, we have stumbled upon something that works. People have this amazing appetite to get news through podcasts. People will actually spend hours and hours engaging with long, complicated stories, and people will pay for them to be reported. They're not paying for exclusive bonus content or, or membership into our special club. They're paying us to make this stuff and to make more of it and to spread it to other people as far and wide as we can for free. They're paying us to do news. But it is not about us. Really and truly, from the start, this has been driven by listeners. From the initial patrons who answered my call to just keep this podcast alive, 
to everyone who has joined in since to pay for more reporters, more series, more investigations. Canada Land is an entirely Canadian solution. This is your news organization. It's special. And again, I don't know what's going to happen to the news business in Canada in the years ahead. I mean, it's not looking good. But this, this is working. And when something is working, you grow on that. You build it out. Look, our business is still very precarious. It is uncertain. It is very fragile. We lose hundreds of supporters every month when their credit cards expire. And we only have 5,000 supporters. So we need you. And yes, I do mean you. I was speaking to a listener the other day who said that he heard me ask for support and it worked. He decided, okay, you've got me. I'm finally going to do it. But he happened to be listening in the shower and, and he just never got around to it. So I am talking to him right now and I am talking to you too. If the things that I'm saying make sense to you, but you just haven't gotten around to it yet, go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Give us five bucks a month or whatever you're comfortable with. Get a t-shirt, get a tote bag, get ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. Let's build on this. Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Thank you. So Canada Land is the podcast where I'm supposed to talk about all the things that Canadians are afraid or uncomfortable to talk about. That's the idea. But one thing that you have not heard me talk much about at all is class. I guess I'm as uneasy about it as everybody else. Also kind of confused about where I stand. When I started Canada Land, I was a new dad with a crushing mortgage and a shaky career in a dying industry. I was deeply in debt. Was I working class? Was I middle class? If so, I guess I fucked up since my parents were both white-collar professionals. So I didn't like talking about class then because I had clearly gone down one, maybe two. But then, a gamble that I had taken seven years earlier when I'd put a few thousand bucks into my buddy's cartooning app, of all things, miraculously paid off. I guess it wasn't that big a miracle. I mean, the very fact that I had a few thousand dollars to gamble on something like that and a friend who starts a cartooning app, those are both kind of markers of my pre-existing privilege. Nevertheless, things went our way and all of a sudden my wife and I were out of debt and all of our worries about, you know, not being able to pay for our kids' education immediately evaporated. This was a very good thing for us, but it was not the kind of windfall that you can quit work over. Our anxiety about money changed, but our lives stayed pretty much the same. So these days, I don't like talking about class much for a very different reason. I'm almost back in the class that I was born into, and the first rule of Wealth Club is don't talk about Wealth Club. Writer Megan Bell has broken that rule. I'm part of the 0.1%, she writes in the Walrus Magazine, and I want a wealth tax. Yes, Megan's essay 
is about why we need a wealth tax to separate people like her parents from some of their riches. But it is also a confessional piece about how poisonous it can be to grow up rich. It's about the culture of wealth, how values around class and the reluctance to acknowledge it pit wealthy people against the rest of society, against each other, and even against their own kids. Megan writes that her family is rich through a privately owned corporation founded by her grandfather. She was raised in a culture of extreme competitiveness within her family and a private school culture outside of her home in which rich kids believed that they were meant to be rich, which kind of meant that poor people were supposed to be poor, which meant that nobody really felt like they needed to change anything. Megan describes wealth as a malevolent social force. Her schoolmates, with the help of private tutors, vying for scholarship money they did not need simply to inflate their resumes. She writes about self-made millionaires resenting their own children for being born with silver spoons in their mouths, even though they were the ones who had put them there. And she writes about how this estrangement within families and this competition between rich kids and their isolation and contempt for everybody else with less than them becomes a toxic soup that produces deeply unhappy substance abusing adults or worse, narcissistic other people abusing adults who often have a frightening amount of influence and power. Ultimately, Megan comes to agree that it is simply immoral to be rich. I am just as uneasy talking about class today as I was when Canada Land started. Probably more so. But this is the podcast where we talk about things the Canadians are uncomfortable talking about or afraid to talk about. So, Megan Bell joins me from Vancouver in a minute. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Ilias Hurley, Jennifer Callant, Daniel Tucker Simmons, Mike Lynn, John McCaig, Tyler Hampton, Connor J. Chatto, and Michael Hughes. Hi, I'm Michael Hughes. I'm a teacher who lives in Surrey, BC. I love long walks on the beach, and I support Canada Land because of its amazing investigative journalism and great storytellers like Ryan McMahon, Archie Mann, Justin Ling, and Jen Gerson. That Jesse guy is not bad either. I'm thankful for the whole Canada Land team. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. 
And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I'm not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Oh, and one last shout-out to Hard Boiled Inc. They make our T-shirts for our crowdfunder, and they make great T-shirts these guys are in Kensington Market here in Toronto, and you can check out their website at hardboiledinc.com. Hi, Megan. Hey. Megan, you start your article in The Walrus by recounting this conversation you had with your dad. You'd given him a copy of the book Winners Take All, and after he read it, he tells you that it doesn't apply to him because it's about billionaires, and he's not a billionaire. He's a millionaire, and you know he doesn't have a mansion with a private pool. Can you tell me about that conversation? Oh, God, that conversation. He does have a mansion with a private pool. It's just doesn't have a mansion with a private pool on his private island, <laughs> to clarify. <laughs> How rich are you? My parents are divorced, so they each have a, like, you know, large, nice house, one on the North Shore, and my dad's in Burnaby. And then they jointly own two cabins, one of which is a private island on a lake. But there's the buildings on the private island are not mansions, which my dad I felt was important and relevant to the conversation. But his house in Burnaby is a mansion and there is a pool and there is a hot tub. But I've only been there once, so I can't really describe it in more detail than that. So his argument is, yes, there, there are, my wealth involves mansions, private pools and private islands, but not all three at once. Makes no sense. Don't try to wrap your brain around it. <laughs> I won't pretend to act surprised by that. I don't think that anybody, any rich person I know, would call themselves rich. Why do you think that is? Why do people always think that somebody with more than them is the rich one? I think it's a combination of, you know, we live in a society that is so competition-focused or hierarchical. A lot of people really do focus on comparing themselves upward. You get so many examples of, like, extreme wealth on, like you know, reality TV and in the media, I think the vast majority of rich people who are much more quieter and covert about their wealth and a little bit more conscious, I think, about how other people see them, like look at those examples and think, well, I'm not like that. I'm not at that level. I'm not that person. If you think about everything as being like projection and like scapegoating, look at people like Donald Trump or like Weinstein or any of the, like the big guys who've been taken down lately. It's like, they're such extreme examples that I think it's harder for people who are a tier below to see themselves in that, but they need to. I don't get the sense, and like when I was a kid, I felt this very strongly, that people really appreciated anything they had. And I specifically mean rich people because that was what I, you know, thought were people growing up because those were most of the people I knew. I think there's just a lot of empty people with big empty voids and they're trying to fill it with other people's respect and admiration, which we as a society still give to rich people and we need to change that really quickly. Stop looking up to people who are, you know, luxuriating or living lavishly. I guess kind of imagine it as being like kind of endlessly hungry, but nothing will ever fill you up. And that's what's going on with 
I think a lot of people and um, people don't want to see themselves as the problems, like especially if you're born into money. Like in my case and in my experience, like there was a lot of things that I was like a part of as a kid or saw as a kid or ways I was treated as a kid where I think like objectively I would be seen as like, you know, a victim. I was a child, like I, I was innocent. But at some point you age out of innocence and into complicity in this system where you're an oppressor and I don't know when that happens like kind of just sneaks up on you and all of a sudden you're there and you think you have a lot of people who don't know how to deal with the shame of understanding their own privileges and understanding how they're in a system that is actively hurting and exploiting others so they reject it so they're look for all these myths about why rich people deserve to be rich or rich people have more merit or are smarter or more hardworking or, you know, whatever other like load of crap that they spew out is just this giant defense against their shame. That might be a generous take, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it's generous in that it assumes that it happens for everybody. I think that it's probably there's some people who it never happens for. Yeah, they just think they're gods. Right. And you write about people who just feel like they were just destined to be this way. Let's back it up to the fact that nobody likes to admit that they're rich. Was there a moment for you when you said, oh, I'm, I'm one of the rich people. It's not, it's not the kid on that TV show. Like, that's me. Oh, I always knew. Like, I grew up in um, North Van, and I was at a public elementary school in a very, like, gentrifying neighborhood. So there was, you know, there were, like, like the rich kids, which I was obviously one of them. It was obvious to me that my family was wealthy when I was a kid. I grew up hearing my parents talk a lot about my mom's family because, um, my mom's adoptive father was the one who founded the family business and made that first bit of wealth. And, uh, you know, my mom's siblings and her nephews, my older cousins, like kind of, you know, stereotypical um, rich kid entitlement, crashing and burning drama when I was a kid. So I kind of grew up with those stories about how money wrecked my cousins and money wrecked my aunt and uncle. So I had to, you know, make sure money didn't wreck me. It was like this moral responsibility that my parents kind of like thrust on my brother and I in a weird, weird way. And um, I think that's, you know, where a lot of the observations about contempt came from, because it really does feel as a kid's like, oh, you know, I don't deserve this. This isn't my money. You're being told that, you know, it's like you didn't deserve this. You didn't do anything to earn it. You are just being given all of these things. You're like you're a spoiled child. It's your job not to become spoiled, not to become a brat. It's you have to learn how to have like a what they see as a healthy attitude towards this thing. But really, the way it like, manifests and it feels is that you feel like you have to prove that you basically deserve to exist. So you get these like kids who feel like they can do that by earning as much money or having that high-paying job to prove that they deserve to be in the class they're in. You know, I think in the arts, there's obviously a lot of children of wealthy people in the arts. We largely dominate the arts. It's a huge problem. And I felt that too, like, when, especially when I was like a teenager and in my early 20s, like, I felt like I had to prove that I was talented enough to not prove that I could make money. Like, it was really messed up and it makes no sense. And it really, I think, is a driving force behind a lot of what is entitlement and certainly comes off extremely entitled, is this anxiety that you're just not enough and you don't deserve it and people will dislike you for what you are unless you can prove to them who you are. And then the who you are can largely become like a construct. You know, you have a lot of people just like projecting their flawlessness and their perfection because 
I don't think any of us want to see others to see, like, are uglier or more vulnerable or the sides of us that need to learn. You really describe it as, as a kind of hell. I mean, we, I think we have kind of shorthand where we say, oh, the rich, they're not so happy. But you really break it down. And, you, you know, you've got kind of people who made their own fortunes and resent old money, you know, snobby people who inherited the wealth because those people didn't earn it. But one thing that I hadn't thought about before is that also makes them estranged from their own kids because their own kids, just like that, that old money, that their own kids is just another spoiled inheritor of wealth. And then as you just described, like that kid has to earn who they were from day one and they can never really do it. They can never do what the generation above them did. They can never have something that they built from nothing rags to riches. If that actually did happen, it often gets glorified. And then the only way they could kind of approximate it is to outdo, take the fortune that you inherited and multiply it and have achievements that are even grander than your glorified father or grandfather. And that's like a recipe for supervillains. That's how we got Donald Trump. Yeah, that's how we got Donald Trump. That's how we have Elon Musk. That's how we have Kylie Jenner. Like, <laughs> It's fascinating to gawk at these family dramas. And, you know, I enjoy it. I watch Secession. It's less fun when you realize how much influence they have on everybody else and how much uh, the, these psychodramas, as they play out, dictate terms for the rest of the world. And that's sort of where your argument goes. You do describe a very lonely and kind of vicious existence for people in this culture that uh, I have to ask, have you chatted with anyone in your family since since revealing all of this? Yeah, I had uh, lunch with my dad. It was awkward. But the plot twist is that after reading the essay, he actually did vote NDP in the last election. Oh, wow. But he still disagrees with a lot of the essay. He feels it was unfair to him. <laughs> you brought up the media's portrayal of, of wealthy people. I, I want to talk about that with you a little bit because wealth is something that everybody is sort of invested in and rich people are a fascination of everyone. We love talking about wealth in stories, but we kind of don't like answering questions about our own money. And if there's one thing that we as Canadians and in the Canadian media, and then I also just think on a personal level that everybody just does not want to talk about, it's class. Do you feel that that's true in this country? Definitely. And my essay doesn't address this. We do a very inadequate job of discussing how class intersects with gender and race and queerness, etc. We don't talk enough about class in anywhere. Why do you think it makes people feel so uncomfortable? Unless it's just Trudeau politicking for the, the middle class, which is a very hazily defined thing of which uh, many people consider themselves a part who are actually not. Outside of that comfortable middle, why do people have such difficulty discussing class? Okay. So I remember like in elementary school, especially like being in like those anti-bullying programs. And the problem with the anti-bullying programs is that they teach kids how to identify themselves as a victim of bullying. They teach kids how to identify themselves as a bystander of bullying, but they don't teach kids how to identify themselves as the bully. So you end up with a classroom where you have kids who have been bullies, you have kids who have been bullied, but they're all identifying as the victim. And I think, you know, I cannot speak for other classes among the rich, I think. There's enough buying into the underdog narratives that they just can't see themselves. There's a bit of a um, contradiction in that we glorify money and we have a culture where people brag about their money. And yet on a, on a actual lived experience, so few people will say proudly or otherwise, yeah, I'm rich. I guess it's because a lot of people are just aspiring to be richer. So honestly, Jesse, I don't know. It's none of this stuff ever made sense to me. I didn't get along 
with my peers for the most part. I didn't get along with my family for the most part. I never understood why people were doing the things they were doing. And I still kind of don't. It's crazy to me. I'm just like, is it so difficult to just be like kind and generous? It really is. It's really easy to do it well and to be thoughtful about it is more difficult. But just to like try, the people just don't do it or they do it in such a narrow social circle that it's essentially meaningless. The fact that you're trying to figure it out is is sort of more than we usually get. I mean, and, and maybe I, sh- I shouldn't be like, I don't know, just pointing this all at you. Like it, this is this is a system that we're all kind of implicated in. I'll tell you from my perspective, like, I think a lot of people live their lives, you get up every day in pursuit of maintaining and growing your wealth. And that's that's what gets you out of bed. There's lots of other things, but it, it really is amazing how, how that motivates so much activity. And not just for people who can't make ends meet or need that or are in fear of getting kicked out. People who have a lot, they'll still get up every day and do all sorts of things they don't want to do to earn. And we're all kind of driving towards the same kind of idea that there is a there there. And your essay got me thinking about this because it's like, it's not like it's a huge revelation to say, hey, people, money doesn't buy you happiness. Money isn't everything. Money money can actually be a bad thing. It'll spoil your kids. It could fuck you up. It's not just that everybody has heard that before. I think everybody kind of knows that it's true. But we simultaneously still believe in money and we let it drive us. So poor people want to get rich to find out for themselves that money isn't everything. Like, if this isn't so great, great, let me find out. Let me go see. And rich people always want more money and and don't think that they're actually rich until they have what the other rich person has. You have to just admire it as, as something that just gets people's asses out of bed every morning. It's like everybody goes to church every Sunday, even though nobody really thinks they're going to heaven or that there is one. You know, I think part of that is the fact that we're increasingly, we're a social species and we're increasingly becoming more disconnected from each other. And I know there's the counter argument, the internet's connected us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's a wonderful thing. But I just mean like person to person contact isn't the same as it used to be. We've had generations of children now for like the first time in human history who were predominantly raised by other children. And I think that we have a crisis of maturity because of that, because of capitalism because parents are forced to work such insane hours, because we have an education system that cramps kids into overcrowded classrooms and under-supports teachers. You're kind of leaving generations to raise themselves, and people are lonely, and people are scared. And I think, you know, especially with, like, the climate disasters, we have this sense of being out of time in all the ways that you could mean out of time. If you don't have any hope for the future you fall back into like a survivalism where you just become entirely focused on yourself and self-preservation. And that's where hoarding resources comes in. Why are some of these like multi-millionaires and billionaires continuing to hoard? Because they've, you know, I think a lot of them have given up on the planet. So they're thinking about how to build a rocket ship to like blast off in space and survive or whatever. Like it's insane. And as for like poor and middle class or lower middle class and working class people wanting money. Like, that's just natural. (laughs) Like, of course they do. And they should have more resources. Like, I think there's very few people who have the option not to buy into money or not to buy into capitalism in a way. It's like a very, like, almost privileged place to be in, to be like, I don't want to participate in this system and I don't know how to not participate in it. You know, a lot of my recent decisions have come out of a lack of survivalism where... I just sort of became so depressed I didn't really care what happened to me. And then I was like, okay, well, what can I do with this that is the most useful for society? And what's that? 
I guess, trying to peel back the curtains, as many curtains as I can, before I crash and burn. I don't know. <laughs> like, when I saw the essay, like, taking off online, I mostly just felt, like, anxious and, like, sad. It was, like, difficult for me to engage with. Even positive feedback felt weird about, like, it's, I'm glad it was written. I am not happy with the fact that I am the person who wrote it. Like, what it means for you, you mean? Yeah. I've never really identified with money. You know, I don't, I've never liked expensive things. I never saw the appeal. It never really made sense to me. Conspicuous consumption always just seemed like a waste of time. Like, I still feel like an outsider. <laughs> Rich people are outsiders in, in that you identify yourself as in the 0.1%. So that's a hyper minority. But you wrote something that connected with people and resonated. And, and it's for a reason beyond, you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous. Let's all get a peek behind the curtain. Your argument with capitalism would be one that I would have rejected years ago because I was always brought up to believe that it's not a pie. You know, uh, it's not like if I get a bigger piece, you get a smaller one. There's enough for everybody. It can keep growing. No. And just, <laughs> I, I, I believe that for a very long time. But, but we are seeing the consequences of our consumption now. And what we do is having an unevenly distributed reckoning on other people. And, and I think everybody's trying to figure out what the hell to do about that. Yeah, resources are finite. And it's crazy to me a bit that like so many people kind of buy into this idea that you can have a lot without being somehow depriving other people. Like, because, you know, so many rich people are literally just sitting on buckets of cash. Like, like a personal example, my younger brother, his stated, repeatedly stated goal right now for his life is to try to accumulate $10 million so he can live off the interest. And he's day trading now, like trying to do that. And it's like, I've tried to explain to him, it's like, okay, but like, you're talking about taking all of this money out of circulation that could go to something useful could be done with. And he'll go for like the Warren Buffett argument. It's like, well, I'm going to donate it all at the end of my life and it's going to do all this good and everyone's going to celebrate me for being charitable, blah, blah, blah. Well, there's, there's a more direct and less abstract problem with his plan, which is this life that he's driving towards where he lives off the interest. What does he plan on doing with that? Yeah, like nothing, nothing useful. But um... <laughs> I got nothing against hedonism. I just, I just sometimes question whether doing nothing is as pleasurable and rewarding as some people and as fun as some people uh imagine it to be. I mean, look, there are going to be people listening to this who feel like this is just like a radical, silly conversation because like the world runs on capitalism and there's benefits of that that are demonstrable from everything from people's like lifespan being so great to there being food to feed the planet, which not everyone's getting. But you do get to the part where you say, here's what we should do. We should, we should tax the wealthy. And there's a cash 22 to that because you write that there are better ways for us to live than capitalism. And the right way to achieve that better way to live is by taxing the wealthy. But the wealthy got wealthy through capitalism. So, you know, that doesn't sound so sustainable. It's not actually what you're suggesting. You're suggesting some, like, pretty reasonable measures. A wealth tax, cracking down on offshore tax havens, things like that so that it just got way out of whack, right? Really what you're, what you're advocating for, it seems to me, is a return to, like, a 1950s level of, of redistribution and taxation. Initially, yes. But I think capitalism needs to be dismantled. It's a pyramid scheme. It doesn't work. Even if we go back to the 1950s versions of taxation, the same thing that happened last time is just going to happen again, where it takes like a few generations and we're going to 
go back to being more and more increasingly exploitative and people being greedier and greedier and greedier. Like we need to change the incentive system. Like we have an entire system that is based off people needing to be better than others and to compete with others. And this idea that you have to earn the right to survive, which is really messed up, especially, you know, in a developed nation under late stage capitalism, the truth is the vast majority of jobs, especially high paying jobs, don't need to exist. And like you say, what capitalism brought us like longer lifespans? No, they actually didn't like better hygiene and better research and medicine that largely was developed and like studied on universities brought us those. Like the main reason people are living longer is because we've learned more about germs and we have people doing a better job of like keeping hospitals clean and we're underpaying those people and exploiting them. Like capitalism just takes credit for all of the good things that humanity manages to do around it and despite it. It's an economic system that doesn't make sense. It's an economic system that separates people, that separates ideas, that separates fields of study. It pits academics against each other so they can't collaborate and combine ideas. It pits workers against each other so they don't communicate with each other. It pits races against each other. It pits men versus women. It's it's a fight. Look, I don't want to be this guy, but they, they tried out some other stuff that didn't work so well. It's an unhealthy system, and I think it's hard to see that when you're a beneficiary of it. But capitalism as an economic system and as a social system is not a healthy way for us to relate to each other and to relate to our environment. And as we break down these like relational connections between people and between like our relationship to place and to the land, that's how you get that hunger because people are consuming things that can't fill them up. Yeah. If I have a quibble with your piece, it's, it's that. It seems to simultaneously be arguing for a post-capitalist society, but also minor tweaks to the formula. I think that the kind of stuff that gets these types of arguments dismissed out of hand is if you tell wealthy people, look, we want a 1% wealth tax and you'll live in a better world as a result of it, they might listen to that. If you tell them being rich is immoral and we're looking to destroy this entire system, then they feel threatened because you're coming after them. They feel like this ends with a guillotine. Those types of class rebellions historically haven't worked out super well for anybody. The only thing is, and why this isn't just sort of the cycling through the same kind of undergraduate debate that people have been having for decades, is that things are changing and the paradigm of everybody wake up, go to work, earn money, it is falling apart. And between automation of jobs and climate change, I don't know. I think people are hearing my ambivalence. I feel kind of like torn between a dismissal of this sort of um, very extreme rejection of the current system with uh, absolute haziness as to what replaces it. But I also feel a practical recognition that the center cannot hold with what's going on now. How things should be has never been more of a live question. I think that capitalism would need to be dismantled very slowly and carefully, which is why I proposed policy changes that would initially just basically provide the government like the money to start implementing these changes especially if we want to like save the planet we need to get rid of the idea that people need to work in order to live and under capitalism we can never have that because labor needs to be exploited in order for some people to become wealthy and they're going to keep people trapped in a system that forces them into exploitative labor like if you start providing people with social services, yeah, you know, you get that criticism with rich people. Like some people just won't want to work. And like, yeah, they won't want to work. They're not going to want to work for you. That's the point. And denying people free education, denying people housing, denying people food unless 
they take that shitty job at the Coca-Cola company or, or Amazon or whatever is what's forcing them into those jobs. You know, even among like wealthy teenagers, like I remember what people wanted to do in high school. So many people wanted to be artists. So many people wanted to be athletes. Like there were kids who literally just wanted to be rich. And there was a lot of kids who wanted to be artists who just wanted to be famous. Like for sure, that was a big motivating factor. But there weren't kids like sitting around talking about how they wanted some like high paying like corporate job or how they wanted to work for a bank like there was a few people like that and they were mostly just aggressively boring but I saw like a lot of people just kind of give up on their dreams for the high paying job and it's an ideology right it's this idea that like doing something that's like unpleasant makes you somehow a valuable or moral person and there's like a lot of like contempt directed towards people who make a living in the arts or who make a living in caring professions. It's like David Graeber points this out, and he was one of the um, authors that really helped me write that essay. So I read The Utopia of Rules and Bullshit Jobs. He points out that a lot of people resent people for being able to do meaningful work. And that's the justification for impoverishing those people and turning it essentially into a class privilege that has to be earned by the previous generation. It's like, oh, you want to be a poet? Like, oh, you want to do charitable work? Have rich parents. Like, that's really messed up and really hurting both poetry and all social services because it's not representative of the most talented people or the most thoughtful people or the people who really should be in those jobs and who understand the kind of work that needs to be done. No, you mentioned earlier the problem of sometimes as, as an escape hatch for the competitiveness of picking up the family business or perpetuating the family wealth, you'll find people kind of getting into the arts in a dilettantish way and it, it becomes a problem for those arts communities. Yeah. Or getting into it for uh, out of pursuit of fame or, or, you know, recognition or attention. And same with nonprofits, like the nonprofit sure. world is the same way. <laughs> Rich people can ruin everything anywhere they go. You know, it, it's just, I don't know what the alternative is. I don't know what you would have your family do if they gave it all away. Would that be better? I mean, it seems like... The ability for capital to generate more capital and make things happen and, and give people purpose and something to do feels like more possible to me to somehow manipulate or twist that into a, a positive thing that sustains than, than just selling off the parts or, you know, perhaps I'm still too, uh, too much skin in the game. I don't have solutions. Like I, I know what I would like to see happen in the short term in an ideal world, but a big part of that would be a government change. You know, one of the reasons I wrote the essay and when I, the walrus took it, I said that it had to be published before the election is because I was trying to push people to, like, take the NDP's policy suggestions more seriously. Now you've revealed the secret political agenda of the walrus magazine. It really um. wasn't. It really wasn't a secret political agenda. I think it was pretty obvious that I was gunning for the NDP in that essay. Yeah. Yeah. Megan, what do you plan to do with your own wealth? Well, I don't have any. I don't have access to my parents' money. I don't even know if I'm actually going to inherit money. I've largely like operated when I was younger on the assumption that I would. And when I thought about what I was going to do with that, like, okay, like one of my dreams was always to like basically like open a, like a bookstore and have like artist studios on top. I guess that's kind of where my mind goes, where for me, like the thought about like coming to a lot of money is like, oh, like how could I put this into the arts community that I care so much about, which isn't necessarily the best use of the money, but you know, that's the, the other problem with rich people and philanthropy is that the money goes to causes that the individual cares about as opposed to where it's most needed. But that being said, I don't know if I'm actually going to inherit 
any money, especially after that essay. I'm in conflict with some family members. And um, like my mom described me as a black hole. She said that I there was no point putting um, resources or time into me because I just constantly give them away and don't invest in myself. And when I kind of challenged her on that, she changed it and said that she didn't see the point in putting resources in me because there was nothing that she could do to make me see her as a good mother. And it's like, you can't get around that kind of rigid thinking. It's like... That sounds very hurtful. I'm sorry to hear that. It's it's fine. I'm mostly just hurt that she went with black hole because I'm like, oh, the thing that doesn't let any light escape. Thanks, mom. But um, <laughs> I don't know if she thought about it that way. I'm a bit more science-minded and metaphor-minded than her. But I don't want to inherit money. That's the other thing. Or I don't want to inherit a lot of money. I don't think I should. That's why I'm arguing for it to be taxed away. I, I don't want my parents to be allowed to sit on this like vast fortune. And then all of a sudden I'm given like an enormous sum of money when I'm like 60 or whatever. That's not what I want. I want their money to go into circulation now and to help people. And um, I don't have that power. So I don't believe in the government we have now. Like the conservatives and the liberal parties are both just nightmares. But I do believe in government in theory. And if we could have a responsible government and responsible people in government and people who actually care more about other people as opposed to their own reputations or their own fame or their own power or their own desire to like see themselves as like smart and important people, I want money to go to that government. And also so we can stop wasting money on stupid things. Like we put millions of dollars into like a child welfare system instead of just giving mothers enough money to raise their children. Like treat addicts in the hospital instead of giving them housing that could prevent them from developing illnesses in the first place. Like we do all the stuff that makes no sense. We have all these mental health awareness campaigns, but we're not taking any steps to actually prevent mental illnesses, which are largely being caused by capitalism. It's because capitalism is stressful for people. Of course, they're developing mental illnesses. People are being isolated, as I said earlier, about like children largely being left to raise themselves. And we're like shocked that we're seeing like a rise of developmental disorders. Like it's like we have a culture that is fundamentally poisonous to people because we refuse to look at the bones of it. We just have people selling us Band-Aids for all the wounds in the flesh instead of taking the knives out of the hands of people we need to. Like calling things diseases that are actually injuries, you know, things like a lot of mental health conditions, I think, are injuries. They're wounds that have been inflicted on people. And we need to look at who's holding the knives instead of saying, this is a disease. Let me sell you drugs for it. I'm not anti-drug. I'm just, I'm just saying that I feel like we're having a really messed up conversation about a lot of things right now. It's, we're not talking about the actual problems. I don't think you even need the analogy. I mean, I think we would rather spend a million dollars on the lifetime cost of a person's mental health, perhaps incarceration, welfare, policing them, when we could have spent $100,000 just to provide room and board and, and meals. But we can't do that because we don't just give those things away. That contradicts the whole system because we're because we believe that you should have to go out and earn those things. And then we also create jobs for a lot of unnecessary quote unquote heroes. You know, when people dream of getting rich, I think what they're really dreaming about is being able to do whatever they want. And yeah, I'm I'm talking to a rich person who doesn't seem like she can do whatever she wants. Well, 
I don't know if that necessarily applies because I think that's more of an internal state in me than the actual situation. I think, I guess what I'm saying is I don't want a lot. All I really want is for the world to be a little bit less of a cruel place. But I think that if I did want more things for myself, I actually could have a lot more. So I don't think it's true to say that I can't have everything that I want. I think that I maybe just want differently than a lot of people with my privileges. It would be easier if you just wanted a private jet. You want the world to be nicer. That's a harder thing to achieve. Yeah, but I also don't think it's true to say that I just because I'm wealthy, I can't have everything that I want because I think the way that that sentence is meant, typically, it would still apply to me. You know, I have a sense that I, if I'd had a different personality or different motivations or less of a problem with, like, chronic sadness, I probably could have had any career that I pursued. I could have had a lot of nice things. I could have had those, like, material possessions and material accomplishments. But you didn't want those things. I think a part of me did. It's just that other things seemed more important or were distracting or... I have a lot of challenges in actually, like, taking care of myself. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm actually kind of a self-destructive person, and I guess I'm just trying to self-destruct in a useful way. Megan, it's been really interesting speaking with you. Thank you so much. That's your Canada Land episode. Listen, if you like this episode, support us on patreon.com slash canadaland. Go to our website, canadalandshow.com, where you will find a new episode this week of Commons, about the Rizzuto family. You'll also find a new episode of Oppo. Jen Gerson is back. This episode was produced by Jordan Cornish. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Once again, if you like this show, if you want ad-free versions of our podcasts, if you want to help us build on what we started here, please support us at patreon.com slash canadaland. Here's a question for the marketers listening. Want to find that perfect customer beyond the world of scrolling, swiping, and searching? Here's a secret to make sparks fly. Smooth talking with podcast ads. With Acast, you can reach millions of listeners who'll be hanging on your every word. On the train to work, in the gym, or waiting in line for coffee. Start up the conversation with podcast listeners anywhere and everywhere. And they're looking for love. 60% of listeners have a higher trust in brands they've met on podcasts compared to social. Get closer to your audience. Make podcast ads with Acast. Head to go.acast.com closer to get started.